Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I am joined today by Chelsea Follett, who is the author of Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Change the World. Chelsea is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and managing editor of humanprogress.org, an excellent website, by the way, a project of the Cato Institute that seeks to educate the public on the global improvements in well-being by providing free empirical data, which is really important, on long-term developments. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me on this podcast. Yeah, I am very pleased with what is going on over at humanprogress.org. Before we get started on the topic of your book, could you tell us a little bit about Human Progress and what you do there and what is Human Progress all about? Absolutely. So it's within Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and the website makes available around a thousand different indicators of progress and shows you how things have changed around the world from every metric of human well-being you can imagine, from literacy rates, rates of malnutrition and how those have been declining, declining rates of poverty, increasing rates of prosperity, and so forth. And we don't just have data, we also have a podcast, a newsletter, we produce independent content as well that puts the data into perspective, videos. We also share news stories that are positive and that highlight developments in science and technology and other areas that are improving lives. And when people hear the word progress, they may wonder, what does that refer to? Sometimes Mm. people use a politicized definition of progress. Some people disagree on what constitutes progress, but we try to stick to the least controversial definition possible. Anything that almost everyone would agree makes life better. Most people would agree it's better to be alive than dead. So falling rates of mortality, falling rates of child mortality. Most people would agree it's better to be healthy than sick. So any sort of medical advance would qualify. Most people would agree it's better to have a stable food supply than to be hungry. And it's better to be literate than illiterate and so forth. So there is nothing in the website and its vast accumulation of data that takes a particularly controversial view of progress. Wherever someone falls on the political spectrum, whatever your ideological beliefs, I think most people would agree that the data that we've gathered does show remarkable progress and improvement, which then begs the question of where did all of this progress come from? Over the long run, things have gotten better. Now, obviously, the world isn't perfect. It always will Mm -hmm, be. And mm -hmm. none of this is to downplay the need for further positive change. But over the long run, there is so much to be grateful for. And figuring out how we achieved all of this progress may hold the key to fostering future innovation and prosperity. So that's really the idea behind the website. We hope to encourage intelligent conversations and debates about the drivers of progress 
And as such, I spend a lot of time thinking about the conditions that help to foster human flourishing and progress. And this book is a part of that. Well, that's excellent. I can tell that there's a glow in the way you talk about what human progress is doing because there's a sense of maybe not pride behind your voice in the sense of like, hey, we know that things are getting better. We have ways to sort of communicate that in data. I have a question that I've gotten pushback for when I've shared links from human progress. And it's like, well, where are they getting their data? And how do I know that that data is sort of solid? And, you know, if anybody looks up who funds the Cato Institute, they kind of have a already skewed vision of like, where might this research be coming from? And so, you know, of course, I don't know what your answer to that is. I'm sure you've come across that sort of critique. How do you defend where you get your data? Because this is the thing that I come across when I post it. It's a valid question. Obviously, there are limitations to all data, but we try to pick the most trustworthy sources available, the gold standard when it comes to international development data that covers many countries over many years. Sources like the World Bank, the UN, different prestigious universities, independent scholars at those. You can find all of the source information available on humanprogress.org. If you click on a particular data set that interests you, you can find a link to the source where we gather that data from. And we do not produce any of the data ourselves. We simply put it all into one place and make it accessible. Mm, okay. So regardless of whether we have any biases, those could it actually factor into the data. And you can also find negative trends on the website as well because we do not cherry pick the data. But the overwhelming trend across the vast majority of indicators over the long run is one of mm. progress. Obviously, yeah. we saw many disruptions related to the pandemic, for example, global poverty after declining for a long time started to tick up again. But now it's actually back to pre-pandemic levels. And we can again say that global poverty is at an all-time low, thankfully. Now, there's still poverty that exists, and we want further progress on this. But knowing that the trend is downward over the long run, I think is very helpful. Do you think the idea of progress and maybe even pursuit of growth has been coming under attack in recent years? I think a lot of people are skeptical that there is progress, as you say, and I'm aligned with you, of course, on this, but I know that it just seems like the ethos out there, the cultural milieu is just simply like everything's getting worse and maybe you should rethink this idea of progress anyway. No, absolutely. It can almost seem insensitive to want to celebrate any human achievements when you turn on the news and you are inundated with information about all of the problems that remain, and there are many, with so many bad things still happening in the world, it can be easy to feel hopeless about the state of humanity. And some people even view all of history, human history, as just one long story of decay and degeneration since some lost golden age when things were better. But I do think that if you take a step back and you adopt a historical perspective, a long-run view, you get a very different picture. And figuring out how we've achieved what we have is critical given all of the problems that remain. If we can figure out what sort of conditions, what sort of society fosters the innovation that we need to tackle 
all of our current problems, mm. then that could be the key to solving some of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that actually helps us pivot into the book more directly because what you're saying there is that humans need to come together and do these things and be able to solve problems. And if we're not able to come together, if we're not in conditions where we can work and cooperate, we are probably going to be unable to do that, which is sort of a theme in the book because cities have a unique <laughs> unique feature, which is yes. there's a lot of people there, or, or at least relative to rural. So just tell us about the point of the book. What are the origins? How did you start writing it? And we'll go from there. Well, spending all this time thinking about what conditions drive forward progress really prompted the idea for this book. A simple question. Where does progress come from? And so I sat down and I made a list of different aspects of modern civilization that we often take for granted. Everything from a stable food supply and sanitation to writing. And I found that many of these aspects of modern civilization, of the modern world, could be traced to particular origin points. And I didn't start out thinking this book would necessarily be about cities. I mm. thought there would be a variety of places. But overwhelmingly, the pattern has been that even when the vast majority of our ancestors lived in rural areas, new innovations and inventions and great achievements disproportionately emerged from cities. And back when the population of the world was much smaller in the early days of human history, even then, before there were really cities at all by our modern standards, progress tended to emerge from the closest equivalents that did exist at the time. And so the book became focused on cities. And while the book features a very diverse array of cities, each one being featured during a particular moment in history when it contributed notably to human progress. And this spans from the beginning of permanent settlements and agriculture all the way to the modern age and the digital revolution. Despite these cities being in such different eras of history and different parts of the world and being diverse in many other ways, there were some common themes that jumped out. One of which is, as you say, the presence of people. Again, relative to the era, any significant gathering together of people seemed more likely to become a center of progress. So why is that? And I think that, as you say, it is people coming together to solve problems. When you've got more people engaging in discussion and debate, you're more likely to hit upon a new idea that happens to change the world for the better. And when you have more people able to engage in a productive exchange of goods and services, more people to specialize economically, mm. you have so many benefits from that that tend to create prosperity. And then that prosperity in a society can fund other forms of progress as well. A very wealthy society can fund beautiful works of art. It's more likely to be able to support people devoting their lives to philosophy than a very poor society. And a wealthier society also can fund scientific research and advancements. So the economic developments that you see from having a larger population 
or more population density affects all sorts of other forms of progress as well. How far back did you think you would have to go to, or or how far back did you go in the book with respect to human history and centers of progress? Because some of these cities are like thousands and not millions, Mm -hmm. obviously, because 6,000 years ago, we didn't have millions of people in cities. Right. The book starts out with the Neolithic settlements where Jericho is today. Now, there's a lot of disagreements on where exactly permanent settlement began or what constitutes the first city, but many scholars describe Jericho as the oldest or one of the oldest cities. It was, as you say, just a few thousand people. So today it would be more like a village or a small town. But at the time, period that we're talking about, the entire population of the world was only about what the population of Portugal is today. I don't think people realize just how much more sparsely populated the world was (laughs) in the distant past. And the reason that Jericho is featured in the book, because each city is highlighted for a particular contribution to progress, right, is for agriculture. Now, this might seem a little bit confusing because we associate agriculture with rural areas, not with cities. But the beginning of permanent settlements and the advent of cities in our history was very much tied to the transition from hunting and gathering to agriculture, to intentionally cultivating wheat and other plants for human consumption. Now, this was a very dramatic transition that was difficult in many ways. It took place over a long period of time and introduced such a dramatic change in lifestyle and so many new challenges that I think it's difficult to conceptualize. But the payoff ultimately from developing agriculture has been a more stable supply of food than hunting and gathering could have ever provided. So the chapter on Jericho, I think, is a good starting point for a book on Mm, the history of the world's most innovative cities. As you go through the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but does it go through like chapter one is going to be your earliest or your furthest back in history? That's correct. So like most history books, this book is organized chronologically, while it's also organized geographically, with each chapter being a short bite-sized vignette on a different city. Each city is featured at a particular moment in time. Classical Athens, ancient Rome, Renaissance Florence, Enlightenment Paris, and so forth. And because each city is only featured for this one moment in history when it was particularly innovative, the book is organized chronologically and moves again from the beginning of permanent settlements all the way to the modern age and the digital Revolution. So it really is a very sweeping crash course in world history, and it's very accessible. So whether you have almost no prior knowledge or whether you are a history buff, I think that you'll be able to find something in this book that is for you. There were a handful of things that I learned, and one of the chapters, the one on Philadelphia, and I forget what the theme there is, that would have been... Uh, liberal democracy. Liberal democracy, right? I, if for a moment I was like, oh, freedom, but because that's what my head goes to. But like yeah. with so Philadelphia, that's what the I didn't... Part means. Yeah, right. <laughs> Very good. The unique situation in which Philadelphia was situated for the time 
that you're focusing on. And obviously, as Americans, we're going to look at that and say, well, of course we know when that was, but it isn't so obvious that Philadelphia or that any particular city would have been like the obvious birthplace of liberty, right? Mm-hmm. And so the unique situation of the city, locate, like geographically and just other factors of it, was kind of a new one on me, which I kind of pride myself in knowing a little bit about American history. That So even with American history, you've taught me something. Oh, that makes me happy. And <laughs> the book, since many of your listeners are American, I would like to assure them that while the book is a global history, it features cities from all over the world. There are various American cities as well. Philadelphia, as you say, during the early days of the nation with the birth of modern liberal democracy. Chicago is featured for its railroads during the age of steam. Los Angeles for creating modern cinema during Hollywood's golden age. New York for its creation of modern finance, its post-war rise to become the global capital of finance. Houston for space flight during the space age. And so there are cities in the United States. Now, obviously, some listeners who may be from cities that I did not list will be wondering, well, why wasn't my city included? I was limiting myself to 40 cities. And the basic criteria were were to look at cities that were either the first to invent or create something that changed the world or which represented the pinnacle in some area of achievement. Mm, Okay, And I didn't want to alter those standards just to include more cities in the U.S., although I knew those would be of particular interest to readers or, or even to get more geographic diversity. I myself am half Brazilian, but there are actually no cities featured in South America. That wasn't meant to slight it. It just uh, was the case that when I looked at possible candidates, such as a city that could have been used to discuss the Incan road system, which was very impressive for its time, and then I compared that road system to the ancient Roman road system, I didn't feel that I could actually say it was more impressive than the other. So there was no loosening of standards to get certain cities shoehorned into the book. And yet the cities featured did turn out to be remarkably diverse. If you are familiar with the history of Western civilization, all of the cities that are familiar to you from that will, of course, be in this book, London, Paris, Athens, Rome, and so forth. But no matter how well-versed in history you are, I can guarantee that there are at least a few cities in this book that will surprise you because it did try to be a truly global history. Mm -hmm. And there are many innovations that come from places that are less known, at least less known here in the United States. Places like Mohenjo-Daro, a ruined city in what is today Pakistan that was created by the Indus Valley Civilization. And they made remarkable advancements in sanitation that surpassed even the much lauded plumbing of the later Roman civilization. Cities like Nan Madol, a stone city built atop a coral reef in what is today Micronesia that showcases the far reach of the earliest seafarers, the Austronesian people who were once the most widespread ethno-linguistic group uh, around the world prior to Europe's age of exploration and discovery. There are so many instances of incredible innovation and achievement around the world 
in such different places. And yet there are those common themes that we were just discussing. Well, one of the advantages, and I don't know if you set out to do this per se, but one of the advantages of covering this globally is there's more often than we might want to admit a sort of prejudice against non-Western civilizations as maybe backward or not as advanced or not as major contributors to human progress. Because, you know, my mental frame is all almost all Western civilization. And so, you know, we have enlightenment, we have liberal democracy, and we have free speech, and we have all the things that we know bring about human prosperity. Yet, not everything that contributes to human progress came from within what would be Western civilization. And so when you focus on things like in Pakistan or in China or in other parts of the world that are that were not influenced by Western civilization or those features, it actually breaks down the barrier of prejudice, I think. Does that follow for you? That makes perfect sense. This is an attempt at a global view of progress and to show that wherever progress has emerged around the world, whether that was in Europe and the contributions of Western civilization are worth celebrating. Absolutely, all of those are included in this book. But no matter where you look around the world, even in these very different places, you can still find various achievements when certain conditions hold. And those conditions for progress are universal, is one of the lessons that I took away from researching and writing this book. So what are those common themes that seem to help enable and drive forward progress for people in very different parts of the world and living in very different periods of history? One of those common threads we already discussed is just people. And that's why cities tend to produce so much progress and so much innovation. But of course, not all cities become major innovation centers. So why some cities and not others? The places that have been the most creative and innovative throughout history are far from evenly or randomly distributed around the world. They can be found in many different parts of the world, but they aren't distributed evenly. So what unites the places that have been particularly creative or innovative? One of the common themes, although it's not true in every case, there are, of course, exceptions, would be relative peace. Now, the past was much more violent than the present by many measures. It can be hard to remember that given all of the conflicts that are happening today and all of the violence that remains. But our ancestors dealt with an even more violent world. And yet, when a city was at relative peace, that's when the city tended to reach its creative peak, its so-called golden age. The chapter on Rome, for example, features that city during a time of peace during Rome's history when, while they were still involved in some low-level wars of expansion, the city was at its most stable and peaceful. And that's really when they created some of their most impressive engineering projects and the road system is what that chapter highlights in particular. There are, of course, exceptions. The chapter on mines, for example, is an example of a city that was very violent and chaotic and unstable. And that actually did become a catalyst for positive change, but that tends to be the exception rather 
than the rule. In the case of mines, the city was so unstable that many people fled and left. And this diaspora of people from mines happens to carry printmaking knowledge during the time of Johannes Gutenberg with the printing press. And this spread printing knowledge throughout Europe very rapidly. So sometimes when you have the wrong conditions for progress, good can still come of it. Mm -hmm. But when you have the right conditions, positive change just seems incredibly more likely. Obviously, some innovations have come out of rural areas without many people present. Flight would be a good example of that. The Wright brothers first took a flight in an empty field and they came from a rural origin point as well. But when you have more people gathered together and they are able to collaborate under conditions of peace, progress is just much more likely. And mm -hmm. history seems to bear that out again and again. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that not all of it was under conditions of peace and some of them were under maybe duress or conflict. Were there some other dark sides to some of the research that you had to maybe come to terms with? I mean, clearly the specter of slavery and the, the fact that there are slaves like sort of maybe in the backdrop in a lot of these cities because that was pretty normal would be one possible example. But was there, what did you find? That is a great example of just how far we've come. Sometimes I'm asked if I could go back in time to one of these cities, which one would I visit? And while it is fun to, with our romantic notions today, as some of these ancient cities think how nice it would be to walk through Renaissance, Florence, or classical Athens. The truth of these cities that we have to be confronted with is that the distant past was not a place any modern person would actually want to live or want to spend any significant period of time in. And every chapter in the early portion of the book, again, the book is chronologically organized, any chapter in the distant past in the first part of the book, as you say, has at some point, a disclaimer usually saying something along the lines of, a modern person would not wish to live here because <laughs> X, Y, and Z. Yeah, right. So many of these early cities had terrible human rights abuses, everything from human sacrifice, which was once widely accepted in many cultures, to slavery, which was almost universally practiced and condoned by almost every major civilization. So we have come a long way morally as well. Up until now, we've been talking mostly about material progress. And it's great that we now have enough to eat, that we now have plumbing, that we have all of these wonderful innovations that make our lives better, medicine, science, and so forth. But we've also come quite a long way morally. And the chapters that deal with moral progress are the chapter on the abolition of slavery and the trailblazing campaign to end the global slave trade that was centered in London, and a chapter on women's suffrage centered in Wellington, New Zealand, the first city with a successful campaign to grant a country's women the right to vote, and the chapter on the birth of liberal democracy in Philadelphia, I think would also qualify as moral progress. When we talk about moral progress, obviously that's a bit more controversial in most cases than other forms of progress. But I think that the subjects that are dealt with in the book are 
pretty much universally acknowledged to be progress. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, we all agree that the abolition of slavery was bad, that giving women the right to vote was good, that having people in general be able Mm. to vote through liberal democracy is a Mm -hmm. good thing, a positive advancement. So we've come a long way, and I think that living in the present age is a wonderful thing, and we don't appreciate just how much better in many ways life is today than in the past, both materially and in many cases morally. Again, not to diminish the need for further progress, but recognizing how far we've come and focusing on those milestones as our ancestors solved so many problems in the past, I think can be very inspirational as we deal with the problems that we still have. Yeah. Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Crisis King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly ebooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. So I have a question. You wrote something on page four that I know is, I think I know why you wrote this, but it is perhaps, I'm going to read it here. I'm just going to just get some thoughts on it. Perhaps the biggest reason why cities produce so much progress is that city dwellers have often enjoyed more freedom than their rural counterparts. That seems a little bit odd to maybe Americans right now who feel like living away from cities would actually feel more free. So what, what do you have in mind there when you think, when you say that city dwellers, and again, we're thinking the context of the city in which your book is centered, often enjoyed more freedom. What does that actually mean in, in what you're trying to say there? I'm very glad you asked that question because that brings us to the last of the three major common themes I was hoping to highlight in this book that I believe are the secret ingredients to progress. We spoke about people, we spoke about peace, but the last and by no means least key condition for progress is freedom. So why would there be more freedom in cities? I think that your listeners are absolutely right that it's not necessarily the case that all cities are free. And in fact, we see, for example, in draconian regimes under authoritarian governments that often the brutal laws see more lax enforcement in rural areas just because it's harder to enforce laws in remote areas. So there are absolutely cases where the rural areas are freer. But in general, Cities, by their very nature, produce more of what is typically called positive liberty, more options, more choices. Because when you have more people gathered together, 
you have a greater number of people to choose from when it comes to who to befriend, who to marry, who to do business with, who to talk to, who to have discussions and debates with. And through all of that collaboration and competition and debate, new things emerge, change emerges, and some of that change is positive. When you are in a smaller community, because there are fewer people, by its very nature, a smaller community tends to be more of a uniculture. It tends to be much more conformist because if you're in a smaller community, that just cannot support the existence of multiple subcultures and different beliefs of great diversity of viewpoints in most cases. And while that can have positive aspects as well, when everyone thinks alike, there is less of a possibility of change. And when there is less of a possibility of change, there's also less potential for positive change. And that's why we tend to see progress emerge Mm. from cities. But again, the point of this book is not to suggest that everyone live in a city or in a city center. I myself, while I commute to a city, I live in a more suburban area. And I don't think I'd be happy living in a city center. I think people should live wherever they want to live. But the overwhelming trend throughout human history has actually been one of urbanization, of people choosing to move from more rural areas to more urban ones. And why is that? It tends to be because of the greater choices, again, available in cities. People are seeking out that opportunity, the opportunity that comes with the more vibrant economies you often see when there are a greater number of people gathered together. And again, just more choices as to what to do, Mm -hmm. more options, more people to meet. But it's not for everyone. And especially with our incredible modern communications technology, it's possible that one day we could even see the long-standing trend of urbanization reverse. And maybe that one day, thanks to our ability now to work together productively while thousands of miles apart through remote work and so forth, that people will start to choose to live in rural areas, which also have their charms and their benefits. But right now, it seems that the majority of people on Earth prefer to live in more urban environments, and the trend is toward greater urbanization in most places. Yeah, I I think the idea of the city is a little underrated for many people who are into freedom and prosperity and progress. And this is why your book is a really important contribution because there's so much value to what a city can provide. My first insight into that was when I read The Triumph of the City. I don't know if you've read that book. Um, Ah, yes. Edward Glazer. And he talks about cities as centers of progress, essentially, too. This book is a great elaboration of that thought if you enjoyed his work. Yeah, no, it it was good. And and, and he goes into detail on just a handful of American cities, I think. Mm -hmm. And it just is kind of like, oh, oh, I didn't see the benefit of that. And, you know, for people who think climate change is is a problem with concentrated amounts of people, cities are actually a solution to that and all this. So cities are definitely underappreciated. And I'm a very much a country person. I would not be able to live in the city for longer than a vacation stay. I very much like the farmland that I live in. But Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely have a a distant appreciation for the value of cities. I want to ask you a couple 
I wouldn't say personal questions, but more fun questions about the project that you wrote here. What were some of your favorite cities to write about? Oh, I think one of my favorites, and certainly, see, I didn't know that much about before researching and writing about it for this book, would be Dubrovnik. It's a city in modern-day Croatia, but it's a very old city. It was once an independent city-state, the Republic of Ragusa. And I think that city just beautifully highlights the importance of policies and institutions of freedom. While it's true that all cities, by their nature, tend to offer more freedom of choice in certain ways, some cities are obviously much freer than others. In the Republic of Ragusa had as its motto just the word libertas, so the Latin for liberty, is not sold for all the gold in the world. Their flag was simply that word standing alone. Mm. And they, if you count a city-state as an independent country, they were among the earliest countries to ban the slave trade because they believed so strongly in liberty relative to the era. And we're talking about the medieval era. They were sort of a medieval Hong Kong. They were a coastal city and their prosperity was based on trade. They were a free trading, seafaring supernova of exchange at the time at the crossroads of different civilizations. And when the Black Death pandemic struck Europe and in many cities killed a third or even half of the population, the level of devastation is actually really difficult to imagine. Ragusa, or Dubrovnik, was among the first cities to create a coherent public health response. They invented quarantine, limited quarantine waiting periods. And by implementing those waiting periods for ships coming into the city, they were able to keep their ports open and actually achieve significant mercantile expansion during the Black Death Mm. pandemic, the plague, whereas some other places such as Venice actually had to close their walls for a time completely due to repeated outbreaks of the plague. And so I think there are some valuable lessons there. While all cities offer a certain degree of liberty by their nature in that positive liberty sense, in terms of policies and institutions, cities differ greatly on how free they are. Mm. And the cities that have been relatively free throughout history have been far more likely to become centers of progress. And another lesson that follows from that is when you look at the downfalls of these different cities featured in the book, so often those downfalls involve the loss of values of openness and tolerance and freedom that helps to make cities great. One of the later chapters is on Hong Kong during its whirlwind rise in the 1960s, going from one of the poorest cities in the world, the level of poverty comparable to some places in sub-Saharan Africa today, to one of the wealthiest and most glamorous cities in the world. They did that through policies of economic freedom and civil liberties. And yet we know today, of course, that things have changed. The pillars upon which Hong Kong's success were built are crumbling in the tightening fists of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's a great reminder of how fragile 
the conditions for progress are and that freedom that allows us to create such wonderful innovations, everything from economic development to scientific advances and artistic achievements, all of these wonderful forms of progress, they are dependent on very fragile conditions that are worth cherishing and preserving. Did you get to visit any of the cities either during your research or maybe even prior or since? I mean, some of the obvious ones, I mean, I'm guessing you've been to Philadelphia and maybe even San Francisco, but some of the more maybe exotic ones. I haven't been to as many of the cities as I'd like. And I began writing this book actually at the start of the pandemic when travel was so severely restricted. And so the <laughs> book was a nice mental tour of the world when I was not actually able to engage in travel in real life. And many of us, of course, cannot visit all of these cities. Some of them today you might not want to visit because they're no longer safe. Again, these golden ages of these cities tended to be relatively short. But the book allows you to go on an intellectual and historical tour of the world. And that's really what I hoped it would be. It's meant to be a pleasant read. Yeah. And while those conditions for progress that I talk about are mentioned in the introduction, and those are my thoughts on what enables a city to be a center of progress. The chapters themselves in this book really just lay out the rise and fall of these different cities and describe what innovations they created in a neutral way. It's neutral enough that actually this book is being increasingly used in classrooms. You can find online free lesson plans available to accompany many of the chapters produced by Cato's Sphere Initiative. Those were created by an AP world history teacher who lives here in Virginia. And the book is not dumbed down. It's even being assigned at the university level, actually. Uh, we know at the University of Toronto, for example, it's being used in coursework. But it is accessible enough that it is appropriate for high schoolers as well and for young people, perhaps even middle schoolers. So I wanted it to be a very enjoyable light read to feel like a popular history book, the sort of book people wouldn't only read if assigned, while also being jam-packed, filled with knowledge and bits of trivia and information people may not know about the past and how we've gotten to where we are today. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a fantastic book. By the way, the cover design is also really amazing too. It's like a very attractive book in a number of ways. Typesetting, the cover, the contents... And as I was reading through it, I realized, oh my goodness, I wish my kids would read this. Oh, shoot, they wouldn't read a book I would. But this one, however, I could say, hey, daughter, read this chapter on such and such because, you know, two of my kids are homeschooled. And I think that could work because they're not long. You said they're, they're bite size and so forth. These resources that you're talking about, where can people find them and where can they find your work? And we've talked about humanprogress.org, but is there any other places that people should go to find these? Thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. So you can find the lesson plans, which are, again, available for free online and actually align with AP World History Standards in the United States, which would be very helpful for not only teachers, but also for homeschooling parents. You can find those on humanprogress.org by clicking on projects and then lesson plans using the menu at the top of the screen, or you can find those on the Sphere Education initiatives website, if you just Google Centers of Progress lesson plans, uh, they should come up. You can find the book wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, 
and on the Cato Books website. And I encourage you to visit humanprogress.org. You can sign up for our newsletter if you like what you see. You can listen to our podcast, which comes out once a month. And you can follow us on social media. Human Progress is on all of the major social media websites, X, the website formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. And you can follow me at Shalivia on Twitter as well. All right. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us. This has been this has been a wonderful conversation. I hope people, especially those who have kids who want to learn, I, I hope they go out and get your book because it really is just a fantastic project that you've accomplished here. So uh, yeah, thanks for sharing about some of the background and what you did there. Thank you again so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished.